Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 554 for July 7th, 2018, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Dr. Marianne Gary. Dr. Gary is a professor at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. She's a scientific researcher into memory, memory distortions, false memories, the myth of repression, and its overlap with the law. You may have heard Dr. Gary before. She's been on Chit Chat Across the Pond, I don't know, probably more often than anybody but Bart. In the past, she's told us how we can never trust our childhood memories, how she can induce false memories in people, and how you may not really be paying attention when you think you're focused and other mind-bending ideas. But I just want to uh, welcome you back to the show, Dr. Gary, or may I call you Marianne? I'd I'd rather you don't, Allison. I'm really only my friend's call me by my first name. <laughs> okay, Marianne. So this week, I wanted to have her on the show to talk about how we get entrenched in our opinions and the effects of facts and data on those opinions and beliefs. And I really wanted to talk to her about this because I really feel like if I have an opinion and I can present facts and data about that opinion, then I should be able to convince people to see my side, my view of, of whatever that thing is. But oddly enough, that doesn't seem to always work out that way. Um, so Marianne, can we, uh, can we just start digging into that? Why, do, why does that not work out? Well, I think for somebody like you, and in fact, for somebody like me, it's particularly hard because professionally, we've spent a lot of our, our lives doing exactly that, trying to persuade our colleagues and, in fact, ourselves to make decisions on the basis of data. Right, uh, right. Right? But, in fact, this is sort of a conceit that we tell ourselves about ourselves <laughs> uh, because it's just not true that we would do that in all aspects of our lives. I mean, I probably do, but you wouldn't, Allison. <laughs> uh, and certainly... I bet we've both run into situations in which we've tried to transfer these conceits we tell ourselves uh, to others and say, but here's the data. And so it boils down to, why don't they believe me if I just show them data? Right. And right. You know, I mean that- yeah. Have you seen that sign that says, uh, complaints are like gifts? <laughs> no. Oh, I just, I've seen these in certain like service industries. Complaints are like gifts. Please tell us how you really feel about. And the fact is, Complaints aren't like gifts. They're like those little packages of dog poop that you leave in plastic bags that you set on fire and put on someone's porch. And no one likes complaints. Well, my friend Diane and I have a phrase where we we like to start sentences to each other with, you know what your problem is? And, you know, we find that that really opens people up to a a discussion. Yes, it does. Because who doesn't like being told they're an idiot? And this is this is the thing. So the fact is, when it comes down to it, each of us, we like to assume that we are... Uh, stable. So we, you know, like I'm the same person I was not just 15 minutes ago, but yesterday and the the year before and a few years before that, like we tell ourselves that we're, we get better all the time. Uh, but, oh, definitely. I'm but more that we're essentially the same kind of person, you know, and we've, and we're consistent in how we behave. So if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it and so on. We like to think that we're smart. And we like to think that we're logical, that we behave rationally. But in actual fact, we're not any of these things consistently. <laughs> well, I also want to believe that other people are logical. And I feel like when I can't convince them with logic, then that means they're, they are illogical. Yeah, So the, right. But so the reason that people make these decisions that you find incomprehensible, or you know, we all of us do, so uh, whenever we have two beliefs or opinions or ideas or we're about to do some, you know, this behavior versus that behavior that violate these assumptions about how stable we are, how consistent we are, that we're smart, that we're logical. We enter into what in psychology we call a state of cognitive dissonance. And what does that mean? Well, it means that I can't have the I can't hold these two simultaneously conflicting positions. They created me a sense of dissonance and I like to be consonant. You know, I like to be a coherent whole that makes sense. I like to make sense to myself. Okay. And so when you have these things like you can't simultaneously believe two things that are in opposition to each other. And and so when you're confronted and I'll give you some examples in a second, but just for now, the idea is that we resolve this state of cognitive dissonance by doing some fairly predictable things that to an outsider look frankly stupid. <laughs> and so when you find people 
behaving weirdly in the fact of what you think is data to the contrary, probably what's going on is something that is, it's the way they resolve cognitive dissonance. And what I want to do, and maybe you can put this in the show notes, is here refer people to a book by uh, Carol Tavers and Elliot Aronson called, uh, it's got a great title, Mistakes Were Made by Not By Me. But not by me. I think I've talked about it before. Oh, you might have. It's a yeah. fantastic, fantastic book. Mistakes and just that made, phrase, not by me. Right? Just that phrase is perfect. And you can see that phrase everywhere. Uh, right. So that, and the title just tells you everything because when you hear people say things along those lines, it's like, oh, somehow there were mistakes, but I'm not really responsible for them because I'm not that stupid. You know what I mean? So like, this is how you wind up saying, uh, like, mistakes happened. So, for instance, here's a general principle that if you go through, for instance, some pain or drama or, or lots of effort to get X, you're going to be happier with X than if you had come to acquire X pretty easily. Why? Oh, okay. Because only an idiot, an unstable, inconsistent, illogical person would go through pain and drama and effort to get something that in the end turns out not to be worth it. So this seems to get to when you make a lot of uh, effort to try to make a make a choice. Like um, I, I'm going to give an example everybody here can recognize. I spent a lot of time deciding on what router I was going to buy. And I talked to Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geek Gab about it. And he said, I'm telling you, Allison, the greatest one on the market, the one you want to get right now. And I should have been listening to the words right now is the uh, the Netgear Nighthawk R8500. So I went out and I paid my $300 and I got that. And 15 minutes later, Dave Hamilton started talking about this new mesh junk. And I was I found myself really anxious, anxious and annoyed every time he talked about it because I was like, no, no, my router's the best router. I don't care if you have facts and data that say that that might have been a better choice. It can't be a better choice because I went to a bunch of effort to figure out to get this one. Well, I was also mad at him for changing it, but... Um, I, I've seen the same thing in me, like when I choose a car and somebody starts talking about a car that's better than the car I bought. Well, they can't be, right? Yeah. Because I'm logical and stable and, and predictable. And Right. So I just bought this Volvo, right? And I've wanted a Volvo since, I don't know, since I was, since they stopped making Saab. So this is, gives you a, a window <laughs> into my world because a lot of people tell you these are the two ugly ass cars in the world. <laughs> so I... Finally, I get this Volvo, my dream car. And uh, I got really, really irritated when I discovered it didn't have CarPlay. <laughs> really irritated. And then so then I was like, that CarPlay is overrated. <laughs> and I just remember picking it up in the showroom and I said, how do I turn on the CarPlay? And the guy said, this doesn't have CarPlay. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, I had waited. First of all, it was not a cheap car. Second of all, I had waited while apparently a bunch of Swedish children or something made this car by from hand. a single block of ice or I don't know whatever they make cars <laughs> out of in Sweden. Yeah, for four months. Right. And then came over and I was like, Ugh. So the obvious solution is to decide that CarPlay, CarPlay is stupid. Stupid Right, because what's the alternative? The alternative is that all these, this car that I've always wanted my whole life and waited four months for and went through all this drama to get is, you know, just defective in some way. Well, what would that say about me? Right. How did I not know that this didn't have CarPlay? I just assumed that it had CarPlay. This would mean I was a moron, you know, <laughs> that I'm not, that I wasn't be logical, right? Because I had gone through everything. I was picking out the, the leather and the colors and everything. And if I then would have to confront myself, like, why didn't you check to see if the car had <laughs> CarPlay instead of just assuming it, dumbass? And so... <laughs> I resolved that by being, eh, who cares about CarPlay? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right? Well, I actually would tell you CarPlay's Devin, cute, but it's not that By the that way, necessary. let's throw Devin under the bus. She got a speeding ticket. She was she had the car out when I was here. She was on a trip somewhere, took the car, got a speeding ticket. And then I said, speeding ticket? And she said, yeah, well, cruise control is so complicated. I was like, well, the gas pedal is not complicated, is it? <laughs> So, there so you that go, was cognitive right? dissonance right yeah, there. Exactly. That's how you resolve this. So this, we see this kind of thing all the time. So in Freudian terms, we might, you can call that defensiveness, right? And defensiveness is, to the extent that we want to talk about defensiveness as the thing, uh, it's a consequence of you know, cognitive dissonance. So either how, I either have to go, you're right, I'm an idiot. <laughs> or even quietly tell myself, I guess I'm an idiot. So when you criticize me, then I turn around and I get defensive and I will start justifying what I did, and that's that's 
That's how, where that how comes from. This is. this is your fault. It's not my fault. Well, another another manifestation of that might be when you hear people say it in a passive voice. Uh, I, I I was listening to a podcast that uh, Marianne uh, recommended called Slow Burn, and it's about the uh, about Watergate and President Nixon after he uh, he resigns from the U.S. presidency. It, it, the story was about this woman Martha Mitchell, I think, and uh, he said Watergate n- never would have happened if it hadn't been for Martha, and it's like. No, 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 no. That's just you wouldn't have been caught if it were for, you know, so so somehow shifting that blame to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Or when people would say, I don't know if you got to this part on the podcast yet. There's lots of beautiful examples throughout that entire podcast of um, cognitive dissonance and these kinds of effects. But what was the other one about? Oh, uh, everyone's done that. He just got caught, you know. Yeah. Like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you can you can uh you can take these ideas and instead of waiting around for people to well or just accepting the fact that you're not going to get through to people with data you can try and think of ways as a lot of behavioral scientists have done is to work with these factors and and uh, try and overcome them to get change instead of just throwing your hands up in the air and going, oh, I guess people are just going to be defensive and can't do anything about cognitive dissonance. And the fact is, yeah, you can. Not always, um, but you can. And there's an interesting, for example, there's an interesting outfit in in the UK called the Behavioral Nudge Unit. And this unit is an outgrowth of some work by a guy named Richard Thaler who... He just won the Nobel Prize, in actual fact, for economics. Uh, so behavioral nudges is a, it's, it's a term that uh, is, is used in the well, social science literature and, and in the behavioral science literature to get people to try and change their behavior in, in positive ways. Okay. So, for example, I'll just give you an example to make it clear. Uh, so... In the UK, and lots of places have this problem, of course. They have problems with people uh, not paying their, like, property taxes on time, for example. Okay. You know? Or just people just go, whatever. Or they get a fine, like a parking fine, or when they just, you know, they don't pay them. Okay. So it happens everywhere. Now, most people, if you say, are you a good citizen, will like to say, yeah, I'm a good citizen. Are you a responsible member of your community? Yeah, I'm a responsible member of the community. Okay. So... If you send people a letter that says, you know, most people pay their fines on time. Uh, Then then what you find is compliance increases. Yeah. It'd be like recycling. You know, uh, most people in your block recycle. And you find that recycling increases. They did something like that with, um, I think it was with energy usage, where they were trying to get people to use less energy. And they kept telling them, you know, you'll get... Uh, here's how much money less you would pay on your bill if you use less energy, and here's the times a day you could do it. And none of these things had an effect until they said, here's how much your neighbors are using. And if you were above that number, those people would start reducing, and now the other people have to reduce theirs, and Mm -hmm. they saw an effect on that. So how is that related to cognitive dissonance, though? Is that saying, so I, I, one of the beliefs I hold is that I'm as good as other people and therefore, if other people are doing this, then I should do that. Yeah, and also that um, I'm a responsible member in a social group. So social mm. social belonging is a real motivator. It's a okay. real thing. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. interesting. And in fact, I think, as I recall, there's been variations in when you say most people in your city do this you mm-hmm. know, kind of thing with power or whatever it is, whatever the change is you want to make. Most people in your city do this kind of thing. That doesn't work nearly as well as saying most people in your block. Oh, okay. Right? So the closer it is to you? Yeah, because the the more abstract something is, the less powerful it is. Okay. It's so, too easy to explain it away. It doesn't okay. feel real. But if it's like, here's my block, well, this is my, this is my immediate reality, and it's easy to think about, it's easy to imagine, and it feels... Probably even closer if you got into like the people in your church or the people in your school district or something like that. That's more of a even more of a close relationship. Yeah, well, in this kind of thing, which was either recycling or property tax, I forget which one it was. It the most effective thing was your block. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and 
in uh it was another i forget where this was i think this also might have been in the uk but i don't recall uh it was oh yeah it was the uk it was cart you know the uh i don't know what they're called here but it's tax you pay uh for keeping your car on the road okay sure registration fee yeah registration fee. okay yeah Okay, so you get this thing in the mail and then people aren't paying the registration fee and they're just going off driving. I mean, not everybody, but a fair number of people. Okay, so now what they did is compare uh, two different interventions. One was a letter that basically amounted to, uh, you know, you're going to lose your car if you don't pay your taxes, right? Okay. And the other one was the same letter with a picture of your car. <laughs> huh. And when they had the picture of your car, that made it might be much more immediate and compelling and... They had 20% more people make payments. So how does that relate back to cognitive dissonance? What would be the change in somebody's head? Well, it goes to meaning, and it would be like, well, only a moron would lose their car, (laughs) right? So it's just, but both letters make that point. But then you add this extra uh, bit of meaning, so you make it personal and close and immediate. So it, it drives home the message like, Actually, that would be really stupid, and there's my car, and now I can imagine not being able to drive my car. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, By the way, I would like to uh, note to everyone that we managed to time this so that it's right when my gardeners came, so that's handy. But we have the windows open, or windows closed, so hopefully it's not too distracting. Um, Okay, so so that's that's one example of what causes us to to have trouble changing our opinions is this cognitive dissonance. Are Are there other examples or other concepts? Yeah, um, well, I was going to give another example. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, if yeah. there's more examples with cognitive dissonance, yeah. yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, yeah, okay. So, the Supreme Court, a couple of years ago when they had their gay marriage ruling, you know, Justice Kennedy was the swing vote, and everybody knew he was going to be the swing vote because... You could pretty much predict what was going to happen. And, and so the legal team bringing the case, arguing the case, decided early on, realized early on that Kennedy was going to be the swing vote, and they decided they would have to build their case around what was important to Justice Kennedy. Oh, okay. And he had been on the record a number of times. He's, he was very clear that he was what you might call a constitutional originalist, so he didn't like to stray too far from the original meaning or wording of the Constitution, yet at the same time, he had said repeatedly in other rulings that uh, one of the fundamental principles of the law was to uphold human dignity and personal freedoms. And so then the idea was for the legal team, they had to then say, we need to present our case in a way that enables Justice Kennedy to link his prior statements, his beliefs about himself... Right, right. ...to the case, right? Okay. So that it wouldn't be a departure for him to rule this way. In fact, it would be consonant with his view of who he was. Now, who knows if that worked, but he was the swing vote. Right. So when you're trying to convince somebody of something... um, Maybe not facts and data, but things that appeal to the emotions that you know they already uh, consider part of themselves. Yeah, that's exactly it's exactly right. So uh, you have to say to yourself, what is the if you want to persuade somebody, then the idea is that you say, what is the next smallest change I can oh. get from you that you could link oh. to your existing beliefs and ideas and behaviors about yourself, right? So that you see this new thing, this new step forward as consistent with your need to believe that you are stable and consistent and smart and logical. Okay. Right? But so you're saying incremental pieces. Yeah. Kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's the good version of the frog in the hot water, in the boiling water, right? <laughs> uh, but it's the same thing. Like this is, the frog in the boiling water is an interesting metaphor because, although I suppose that sucks for the frog. <laughs> no matter how slowly. Yeah. So the, the idea is the same for good or for bad outcomes. So you get positive change by incrementally bringing the frog or the per, you know whoever to, to the next step. I uh, just thought of a great example of this in the movies. Did you ever see, um, oh man, it's going to only work if I can see, it's come up with the name of the movie. You can't handle the truth. 
uh, Tom oh, Cruise yeah, yeah, and yeah, 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 Jack yeah. Nicholson. Yeah, where where Tom Cruise as this young lawyer slowly gets he just keeps feeding Jack Nicholson little bits at a time and gets him to agree with you know what's well, really hard doing this or well, you're in the face of danger at all times aren't you under these conditions you know and he just keeps giving him things that he agrees with until he says exactly what he needs him to yeah, say. Yeah, that's exactly it's exactly right. So you can do that for good or for bad, and but it also explains the same exactly the same mechanism really explains how i mean going back to slow burn it explains how apparently good people can come to do spectacularly stupid things right Hmm. so it's because they don't wind up you know they don't wind up sitting around going i don't know how about we just uh break into the democratic national headquarters and do you know it it has to be tiny little things right a little step each time that convince them each piece is in alignment right yeah yeah and each time this step is small enough that it can be accommodated within your worldview. I'm glad you said for good or for evil, because I also think about uh, you could use techniques like this for good or for evil, right? I yeah. can talk you into do some, doing something bad, or I can talk you into something that I believe is good. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the idea about how it is that you could persuade people. Um, there's another There's another driver of decisions that we make and and another driver of cognitive dissonance and it's one of my favorite drivers really which is something called confirmation bias okay and confirmation bias is the reason that we need to have for instance double blind clinical trials so confirmation bias is the idea that we look for evidence that confirms our existing beliefs and explain away evidence that doesn't fit so it seems to me it seems when you think about it this is the opposite of the scientific method, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The scientific method exists partly in recognition of the fact that we all have these biases. And so it, it, it's designed to, as best as you can, mask these biases, you know, hot, protect you from yourself and protect other people who rely on your science from yourself. But everybody has this. And in our own private capacity, we all have confirmation biases. No, I don't. I know. It's, it's good that you don't. So everyone except you does. Right. So, for instance, if you... And there's lovely experiments on this kind of thing. But if you could have uh, fans of two sports teams playing each other, watch a recording of a game, and then you have them talk about later what they saw. And so what you'll find is that people who are uh, fans of this sports team think that the calls against the team were wildly unfair and just mistaken and just stupid. And the other team goes, no, those were totally fair. And then it flips, Mm -hmm. of course, right? And so they have completely different views of the game Hmm. you know so again confirming their belief is that their team is better and their team is is unfairly treated yeah the the unfairly treated thing exactly yeah yeah i can i can definitely i can definitely see that when i think of course of technological things like uh when i hear about a you know malware on android see yeah. Oh, right. Oh, you know that thing they found on the on the iPhone. Yeah, but that that was really a small example. Right. On on the iPhone that that didn't. You know, it's not like what's going on over on Android. Don't. It's crazy over there. Right. So I mean, I wind up. Um, it was interesting work, I mean, as you know, and I think said at the at the opening that I have a, sp- a special interest in applying principles of cognitive psychology to the law. And there's interesting examples, I think, of cognitive of a confirmation bias that show up in legal issues. And and so one is like, at what point do the police identify a suspect and then close off other avenues? Right. So oh, once right, they, right. Uh, once they think it's that guy, then they start looking for evidence that basically puts that guy in the hopper and, mm-hmm. and they don't, you know, they explain away other evidence. And I think we've been talking about when we met with, I met with a friend of mine yesterday and, and one of her areas is about the, the dubious scientific basis to forensic science. You mm-hmm. know? So one of the ideas there, one of the, and there's a whole set of research now that suggests that this is true, is that a lot of uh, in forensic situations you have, they, they know, okay, here's the police suspect. And, you know, does this fingerprint look like it belongs to this guy? Does this hair look like it belongs to this guy? And so then the, the question is, 
just to say yes. And the tendency is, it, this is not really how good science works, right? So the tendency is then to just look for evidence that, yeah, it looks like it, looks like it fits this guy. Right. You know? You know? So right. It's it's very interesting, and, and, so, and we're not and we're not saying they're corrupt in doing that. No, it's just a normal tendency. It is, isn't. Is yes. You think you've got the right person. Look for more evidence to support the case. Yeah. But oh well, the fact that his car was red, not green, like the person said. Well, they probably just didn't remember that correctly. Yeah. Or or you know whatever the facts that don't fit might yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. There's no. I mean, there's no other science that basically says. We think this mass murderer is this guy. Do you think the fingerprint belongs to him? Do you know that kind of thing? Yeah. That puts an awful lot of pressure on the examiner. And okay, they so, ma- you know, they can make decisions on the basis. You know, you have implicit that you're not aware of the fact, right? Like, I make decisions on the basis of wanting to help or explaining away other things or, or looking for evidence that to help close the case. You know, I mean, this is, this is just basic human, basic human stuff. So that's that's one area. Um, and the other kind of area is like when you get into a courtroom, there's some research that suggests that, uh, well, if you think about uh, a trial, you have the prosecution makes an opening argument, and then the uh, defense makes an opening argument, and then the prosecution presents their case, and then the defense presents their case, and then they reverse. So... There's research showing that juries will go along and listen to evidence. And once they come and they're trying to form a story of the case. And once they have a story of the case in their head that clicks, then, well, they fit evidence into that story and explain away evidence that doesn't really fit. Now, this isn't entirely true. Sometimes new evidence comes in that knocks them off their old story or whatever it is. But they'll come up with what essentially is a belief, and then a confirmation bias drives how they then interpret the rest of the data. And so when you think about it, who goes, who gets the opportunity to build the story first? That's the prosecution. Oh, okay. So now you have this interesting, what I think is interesting. If Mark's listening, he's just going to head is exploding. His head's going (laughs) to explode. Yeah. So you have this interesting set of, uh, this interesting tension between our stated foundational principle of the criminal justice system, which is that if you're on trial, the presumption is that you're innocent and we have to overcome that presumption in order for you to lose your freedom versus the fact that the structure of a trial is set up to create a bias that works against that principle. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So the first thing you hear is what you're more likely to stick with. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I started thinking about that in terms of books and movies and things where where you're you're watching a movie where you're pretty sure you know who the bad guy is, but but then the ability of an author or a director to turn your head and make you start seeing the other side. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. Th- that's a, that's a skill and would it make is a, a good real lawyer. Skill. Yeah, and a good it, defense right. lawyer. <laughs> it is a skill. It is a skill to to bring you down a rabbit hole over here. And have you going, yeah, it totally fits, totally fits, and then boom. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a woman, um, oh, I can't remember the author's name. She's written a bunch of books, but uh, one of them is called The Hypnotist Love Story. And it's about this woman who's, whose boyfriend has a stalker. And it starts out, I mean, this stalker is bat, you know what, crazy. I mean, this woman is nutso. She's terrible. She's awful. And that's not where you end up at the end of the book. You know, you see a different view of the world. And I, and all of her books are like that. She did Pretty Little Eyes. They made a movie out of it. Anyway, she's a phenomenal author. And I always think about how she's able to turn my head around and make me go, oh, that's different. You know, that doesn't fit at all with what I wanted to believe mm. when I started. Yeah. It's a skill. Should, should be lawyers. <laughs> uh, any other uh, examples of... Um, of the uh, of the confirmation bias, or do you want to move on to the next point? Well, there, I think um, one of the ones. Speaking of slow burn, uh, and they they don't really mention it there, but they mention this guy is John Dean is the White House Counsel mm-hmm. under Nixon, and he wound up testifying before before the congressional. I don't know what it was. It, hearing or whatever it was committee probably yeah the committee yeah right 
And so they were investigating the whole Watergate conspiracy. And so he was telling them, yeah, I worked, I worked in the White House. I was the White House counsel. And here's, here's what happened. And here are the players. And he was so impressive as a witness because he was very, he gave a lot of detail and it was, you know, and, and, and he came off like a really solid, you know, citizen and all of that. Um, but of course, Nixon had recorded all these conversations, right? So when you compared what actually had happened during those conversations and the transcripts from the White House tapes, you know, the Oval Office tapes, with what John Dean told the committee in Congress, what you see is that, okay, he got the very basic plot line right, which was... The broad strokes. Yeah, the way broad strokes, as in there was a conspiracy. <laughs> and here were the people involved in the conspiracy. So if you move to the next level, did he get the gist of it right? Well, uh, kind of. But what was really kind of, I thought, cool is that uh, where he was wrong, where John Dean was wrong, he you can see that he wasn't just wrong in a random way. Often he exad well, not I don't think it was deliberate, right? Because... You would have to be an idiot to be a lawyer and testifying before a congressional committee and like blatantly, consistently as their star witness, like lying to them. Hmm. So, and he wasn't in there. He's just, I'm here to tell you the truth. And, and he was, by all accounts, giving what he thought was, was the truth. So he was, got the very broad brushstrokes, correct. But when you look at what he told Congress it, and then compared it to the transcripts from the Oval Office, his role was so much less than he led Congress to believe. Oh, interesting. Right? interesting. Yeah. So is that back to the cognitive dissonance yeah, that yeah, his perspective on, on how important he was yeah, had to be reflected probably. in the story? So let's, yeah, let's think about why that is. I mean, you can, you can only speculate, but it would be, I'm a good guy. I'm a citizen. Here I am telling Congress what, what really happened, you know, trying to probably maybe atone for the fact that I was involved in this thing at all. And... So, of course, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm standing up for truth and justice in the American way and all of that kind of thing. And, and it wasn't really like, it doesn't really, doesn't really read like lying. It reads like he thought he was more of Superman than he actually was. And that he was more of a player in the whole thing than he was. He wasn't really a, a player, you know, when you look at it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that, I think that's kind of interesting because I really like, as you know, I'm a memory person, and so I really like the idea that what helps uh, in some ways maintain, like, what is it? Like, if you, if you are the frog in the boiling water and you wind up doing bad things, how do you deal with that when you, in your memory? And, and so, because the frog Are in you the boiling, rewriting it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because it's like the frog in the water. It's not just in an afternoon, right? It plays out over maybe months or maybe years or whatever. So, right. And so then how do you accommodate that in cognitive dissonance terms? Well, you wind up kind of rewriting your past. It's so quite comforting. It is quite comforting, <laughs> right? So he now goes and folds, you know, he's got this reality where when he thinks about it, he, he was, well, we're all funnier than we were or faster than we were or smarter <laughs> than we were and less corrupt than we were it makes us feel better in the in the moment and fits with the idea that we're you know good and stable and people and really all, try all those to resist things beginning right yeah all those things from the beginning yeah it's probably a defense mechanism right of against going uh, you know losing your mind if you really understood that you weren't as smart or as funny or as stable as you think you are, then I would think your your mind might start to crack a bit. Well, it's certainly an un. I don't. It it's an unpleasant situation to think about. What does this mean for me and my identity and 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 you know as a like as a grown up and and I've often said one of the reasons we get out of bed in the morning is because we have these. Get illusions about ourselves you know, that work in this positive direction. I really hate having you on the show. You know, I know. crusher of dreams yet again. I know. Now when I wake up and I think I'm going to be great today, I'll think, 
Maybe I'm just delusional. Marianne said so. I should That's go okay. back to sleep. That's okay. <laughs> you should go back to sleep. Okay. So if we've got uh, cognitive dissonance working against us and trying to convince somebody of something, and we've got this confirmation bias, they're already going to agree with what they already believe. What can we do in terms of persuasion? Well, you can think about this metaphor of the frog in the boiling water, and and you identify people's values and beliefs and what they already accept to be true about themselves. And, and like I said earlier, you, what is the next thing that you could do to move them along to where you want them to move along? So that either means linking the next thing to their beliefs and values and, you know, things that would fit with their stated view of how they see themselves or trying to get them to do the thing you want while not even going there. So for instance, if you think about, uh, you know, all this drama about vaccinations cause autism. Right. You know, this is just like a thing that reliably sends me into mental orbit. Talk about lack of science. Yeah. 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 And so it's right. So it's just, I personally, even though I've been talking about this for about a half an hour now, I personally just feel like I want to scream at people, (laughs) even though I know this is not going to be effective. But I want to be like, are you actually kidding me right now? I actually, uh, I took a class, uh, a guy from uh, at UCLA. I'm blanking on what his name was, but I've never been able to find him since. Haven't been able to find books by him or anything. But he talked about, uh, when you're faced with a situation like that, think about what your objectives are. If your objective is to scream and let off steam, go for it. All right. But realize that that's why you're doing it. If your objective is to try to get them to do something you want them to do, you might want to consider alternative paths. Yeah. Well, and sometimes you choose A, sometimes you choose it's, B. But it's if you exactly, look, it's exactly right. If you look right at it and make sure you understand why you're doing right. it, then it's okay. It's like, right. I'm just going to yell at you today because I just don't have the energy right. to try to spend to figure out what little, how, how much higher I could turn the water boiling up on you just today. Yeah. So this thing about people not, it's not, typically it's not them not getting vaccines, but it'd be like, I don't want my children to get vaccines. Right. It's about, it's about kids. And, you know, <laughs> there's been a whole lot of work trying to, that started with uh, probably people smarter than I am just bypass the, are you kidding me phase, which is where I would have started, <laughs> but Started with, no, actually, you must not understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, <laughs> here's the bad things that are going to happen. Right. right. Now, when you show people bad things that are going to happen, and they've already got this stated thing about vaccines are bad, or I'm not doing vaccine, whatever it is. Uh, they well, don't believe you, right? Yeah. They, so there is your confirmation bias. But also, it's a threat to them. Like, for me to go, oh, okay, means... I'm a dumbass who's believed these dumbass things about vaccines, and it turns out that's not true. So, of course, you're going to be defended about, against that kind of thing. But in actual fact, there's, I just read some quite recent work on this issue. It says, you know, this, the assumption that people aren't getting their kids vaccinated because they think vaccines are causing autism is only a tiny fraction of parents. Most people wind up not getting their kids vaccinated because there's a whole lot of effort involved in it and they have kind of disquiet or discomfort about it, but they're persuadable. But that that wasn't a problem before that idiotic woman said it was related to autism. Yes, I know, I know. So so it was just as inconvenient back then. Well, it's, but it's not just inconvenience. It's it's that they're not strident campaigning about, you know, vaccines cause autism, but they're they're uncomfortable and they just oh, but maybe it's just so enough of an excuse yeah, that it adds that much limbo. friction well they're kind of in this limbo yeah i think it's a bit of a limbo thing and they don't know what to do so it is and 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 so this there's been some research thinking well is it that it's they have this hostility about the vaccine in which case uh making it easier to get the vaccine is not going to help or is it just that it's hard to get that whatever it is but it turns out that uh If you, oh, what I was going to say is, of course, you could do their whole rehab thing. Like, I need to change your beliefs about the vaccine and Mm -hmm. try and rehab this whole thing. But, you know, so I understand that you have this 
these assumptions of you as a as this kind of person and you're a good person and try and do the whole frog in the hot water technique. And you could do that. You could do that. The kid's 27 by the time you convince him to get yeah, the vaccine. Right. So the most effective work in this area looks like it's where you just sidestep that whole issue and you just think, I'm just going to see if there's a whole lot of uh, maybe resistance because there's this bit of uncomfortableness, this bit of disquiet about the vaccine, plus a whole lot of, as you said, friction. Mm -hmm. So what if I take away the friction? Then what happens? And it turns out that if you make it way easier to get a vaccine, for the kid to get vaccinated, like it's called a passive activity. So you just, instead of making the parents have to go call the you know, doctor, yeah, and make it, you know, blah, 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 and file the insurance claim, all this kind of thing. It just shows up in your school. Now, you would think that if I was vehemently opposed to the vaccine, or even if I had just some disquiet and that was the whole issue, that I would then march into school and be like, oh, hell no, you're not vaccinating my kid. But that's not what happens most of the time. Most of the time, then the kid gets vaccinated. I wonder if another factor in that is exactly what you said is, is they say uh, everyone else is getting vaccinated. Yeah, I, I wondered about that. Whether that was in there yeah, too. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they everybody's have. getting vaccinated, but you don't want to opt your kid out, do you? Well, yeah, that's funny you say that because opt out strategies are much more effective than opt in strategies. Sure, right? sure. Yeah, so it is. A, it's probably a bit of that social opting out thing as well. So the nurses show up in the school uh, versus you having to go to the doctors to get the shot, and then boom, most of the time, you know, there's these are really really effective. So. Look, what happens there is that we don't have to go and deal with the, look, I know you're a good person, (laughs) Uh, but here's, let me tell you about science and how it works, right? So you don't even have to go there. You just work on the friction part and you sidestep the entire persuasion issue. And that turns out to be what's most effective. I'm glad there is an effective method, but it does really drive me crazy. I've read a bunch about this and there's, there's some statistics. One of the things I was reading talked about, uh, if I said to you, there's there's a door right there and there's a birthday party on the other side of the door that your kid can go to. And there's a one in chan- 10 chance that they're going to die if they walk through that door or one in whatever, one in a hundred, one in 500 chance they're going to die if they go to that party. Would you let them go? No. Right. Oh, yeah. And yet those same people wouldn't, it, it, it that does, isn't effective. Penn and Teller did a spectacular video. I don't know if you've seen it where they, it starts with a, a graphic of it's, it's them on a white background with this graphic of a gazillion children. And it shows you all of the, all of the bad things that can happen or something. They keep disappearing. And in the end, there's it, basically it's no, there's no chance at the end of this, they're going to have autism. You know, it's, it's really, really effective to me confirming my, already we can call it a belief but my understanding that the science shows that it doesn't cause autism and yet that's completely ineffective as well yeah but show up in the schools with a needle and i i personally have gotten my flu shot at the gym because i walked in and there was a woman sitting there with the flu shot there i was like ah yeah it will take oh, me exactly. no time to do it. I well, have no effort to go do the flu shot. It's funny you say that because the, you know, the analogous situation in adults is uh, people who believe the flu shot causes flu. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, okay, you know what? It's not even a live virus. So it doesn't cause the flu. It can't. So, right. It can't. It, but we all know people who believe it, don't we? Yeah. And we all know people who say, oh, I, but I got the Well, probably what you had is something in your arm and you were already going to get the flu. So, please. I do remember um, I had a uh, taxi driver pick me up at the airport and he was driving kind of crazy and I noticed he wasn't wearing a seatbelt and I noted it and he said, yeah, my sister was in a car accident and when the car crashed, she flew, uh, she was trapped in the car and because she had her seatbelt on and she died. My answer was, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there, there isn't going to be another, there is nothing I could ever say that would right. convince that person otherwise. Right, right. So the person, it, it's... A more extreme example, but I got the flu once when I got, you know, it doesn't matter whether you knew the fact is statistically you're more likely to die without a seatbelt than with a seatbelt. That that fact would never convince that guy. Right. And when they were bringing a mandatory seatbelt laws in the U.S., that was the the go to line from a lot of people. It was like, oh, I know people I want to be thrown free. Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> I know someone who died because they couldn't get out of their seatbelt. I mean, you just don't hear that kind of thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't be, and which is interesting because there should be 
way higher rates of people dying because they can't get out of their seatbelt because more people are wearing seatbelts. That was true, but yeah, that is exactly, a good exactly. So I've got. So if you get these people, you know, you get these kids vaccinated, or you get the flu shot, whatever, because you walk into the gym and then boom, there it is, right? So uh, then you can sidestep the whole issue. And like, what I want to do afterwards is. Then I want to scream at them. Now that you've had, now that you've had your shot, let me scream at you about how science works. Okay, but even though it's this is true, why they don't let you around regular people, isn't it? Yes, exactly. This is why you know. So when you, even though I know, like I wonder, even though I know, here's what's true: uh, people underestimate risk in some situations, or overestimate risk in others. Right. So it's like what hmm. you're saying. So you see parents in these. SUVs with the tinted windows driving their little kids to primary school rather than letting them walk two blocks because stranger danger. And it's just like, really? You yeah. know? And on the other hand, you say, okay, well, you know, you have greater odds. Your kid has greater odds of, of catching measles or, or, you know, whatever, or mumps than of getting autism, which is zero odds, just FYI. <laughs> and, and here's what it looks like when kids get mumps or here's what it looks like when, you know, and so then they'll explain that away because there's your confirmation bias because to go, ah, oh. or, or uh, you know, so that that risk feels remote and foreign and just really not likely. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, so that's the first thing that we need to keep in mind. The second thing we need to keep in mind, again, even though I personally want to scream at people, is that. When you take this, you have, so you have these two camps of people. You have people over here are going, no, vaccines will give you autism. And people over here on the other side who are like me going, are you kidding me right now? Right. And so. <laughs> Science statistics. Right. And so when you give, uh, let's say we give both of these groups data. No, here's all the evidence about, or here's the number of kids who got autism because of a shot. Oh, zero. Look. And here's what happens if you don't get your shot. And you give, you give these people you know, both of these camps of people, you give them data, right? And so what happens is you'd think, oh, now they're going to find some common ground. Here's where we agree, right? You know? Right. And so I'll move a little bit towards the center and you'll move a little bit towards the center and then we'll work out our different. No, what actually happens is they become even more polarized. Really? So people retrench, yeah. So I'm like, see, now I'm more of, an, of a jerk because now I've got data that makes me feel like I'm, of course I'm right. See how smart I am? And over here, on the other side, people will take the same data and be like, no, it's not true because blah. And they'll like double down on the why it's not true because they also think that they're smart. And neither side wants to say that I'm not smart. But aren't all the science people the smart ones and all the ones yes. that don't believe in science the yes. stupid ones and, yes. and we should roll over them? I, I Yes, yes. <laughs> but that's what happens. So this is what when you present people with data, they become more entrenched. Because for them to accept the data and change their position means that they were stupid and they had committed. And in the worst, the more publicly stupid <laughs> they've been, the worse it is. Okay. Because it the means more, more. They have more to lose. You know, in uh, Arab countries and in Asian countries, there's that whole concept of saving face. Yeah. So when you get people to change their mind, you have to give them a face saving out. Uh. And it's all ritualized and and uh built into that the culture but we we ourselves could do a similar kind of thing so if you just move people a little bit you know how can i get you from a to b just like what i said so work with your existing values and beliefs and get people to take the next step or just bypass them all together by show up with the vaccine yeah you show up with the vaccine how about we have the vaccine we're all doing it and all the co- all kids are doing it so we let people save face. Yeah, that definitely does. I've thought about it in uh, in the work environment where I had something that I needed to convince uh, a, a committee to do in some way. And I found that if I could get a couple of people to agree with my position first, as you went around the room, if you sort of like uh, you were talking about in the courtroom, who gets to go first? If you get a couple of people to say yes first, you're more likely to get yes around the circle than if the first couple of people say no. Yes, because people who speak first anchor the discussion. Right. right? And so right. it becomes in, in cognitive psychology, we call that an anchor and it becomes the thing that becomes the, like the focal point or the filter through which everything else 
oh, okay. passes. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. that's why that why that can work, right? It does. Yeah, it really helps. That's why when I go into if I go into a meeting, I try and make sure that. And this is what's, you know, in a good meeting, you'll try and organize people ahead of time to be like, all right, well, here's what's going to come out, and here's what other people are going to say, and this pinhead's going to say that, and blah 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 blah. So then I'll speak, and then you speak, and so you know, and then it becomes a bit of bit of theater when you try and manage. You know, that's that's another kind of persuasion yeah really, or or getting from a to b so you can sidestep yeah so one of the problems with having a meeting where you actually have a, a free and frank discussion of ideas of course <laughs> is that you wind it's up, dangerous you don't know where it's gonna go yeah well you wind up sometimes you you want to sidestep the entire issue of are you kidding me right so you want to just i just want us to get us to a situation where we're having the shot boom <laughs> without processing right? right so yeah well this is this has been really interesting i actually this might be one of the more happy making discussions because you've told us all the reasons it's hard to convince people but now you've given us some tools to manipulate them yeah so i guess it's not dream crushing it well it's a little you dream crushing hope. by saying you just need to let go of the idea that if you give if you give people hard cold evidence, they're just going to get more entrenched. Yeah, that's still I, I have cognitive dissonance with that idea. I know. Well, because to them, but if you think of it from their point of view, you're giving them the paper bag with the dog poop in it, right? <laughs> I mean, you think it's nice charts and graphs, but it is a paper bag with dog poop because the only way that they can accommodate it is to admit to you and to themselves that they're they've been stupid, and so they won't. They'll just most of the time, they'll just come back and be like, whoa, and also, blah, when that's new. It's just like, I didn't, what blah? Blah is new. We didn't hear blah before. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect place to stop the discussion here, Marianne. If people want to uh, follow you on Twitter, where would they Where would they go? Uh, I'm Dr. Lamb Chop. Please follow me. All right. Thanks for being on the show yet again, Marianne. Okay. I, I'm sorry, Dr. Gary. Yes, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. This show is not supported by ads. It's supported by you. If you learn from the show, or even if you're just merely entertained by the shows, please consider supporting the show. If you go to podfeet.com, there's a big red button in the top banner that says support the show. If you click it, that will reveal to you several ways to contribute. You can pledge a monthly amount using Patreon. You can use the Amazon affiliate link for your country. You can make a one-time donation using PayPal, or you can record a listener review, which is an awesome way to contribute. You can always chat directly with me via Twitter at PodFeet or email me at allison at PodFeet.com. You can join the conversation in Facebook by going to PodFeet.com slash Facebook or on Google Plus at PodFeet.com slash Google Plus. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.